You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. And we do have our notes available in our Google Drive folder if you'd like to access those. We're continuing to work through the book of Hebrews, a book that is all about Jesus being better and Showing his superiority uh, helps us to persevere through trials and temptations that we don't abandon Jesus in the midst of those things. We've seen that he's better than prophets, better than angels. We've seen from Hebrews chapter 2 our responsibility not to neglect and drift from his word. Hebrews chapter 3, to not harden our hearts. Uh, We saw in Hebrews chapter 4 the importance of spiritual rest and how belief leads to that rest. We talked in Hebrews chapter 5 about our need to be ready to teach about the better priest and the the depth that comes from seeing the connection uh, with Melchizedek and Jesus. Uh, We saw in Hebrews chapter 6 that once we're saved, we're always persevering. We don't fall away. Hebrews chapter 7, last week we saw specifically that deeper teaching on Jesus and the better priesthood um, and, and how he's connected to Melchizedek and how that priestly order is better than the Levitical order as well. And we talked about how uh, God doesn't change his mind about saving us, that he keeps interceding for us through Christ, and that ultimately Jesus can save to the uttermost. And so we tried to connect some deep truths last week with that story of Melchizedek, who is an obscure figure in the Old Testament. It's one that we don't typically think about. Um, In fact, I had the privilege this week, I had like a 45-minute notice that I was going to have to do chapel this week because our other speaker couldn't show up. And so I was kind of scrambling around about what I was going to teach on and ultimately just decided to, to go to the story of Melchizedek from Genesis and teach our kids that story because it's one of those stories that you just don't hear about. In fact, when I surveyed our kids, there were very little hands raised about who had ever even heard the story. And it's such an important story for us to understand Jesus and his priesthood and why he's a better priest. And so we see that in Hebrews chapter 7. Last week, I told you from an application standpoint to, to really be praying for that one person that you consider to be unsavable because we saw how Jesus can save to the uttermost. And so there's people that sometimes we dismiss thinking, man, I just don't know if God's ever going to save that person. For us to really be intentional about praying for that individual, believing that Jesus does save to the uttermost. And then I challenge you as well to, to work through those application points that we've been going over in relationship to Hebrews, the idea of us sharing kind of an updated understanding with our accountability group of things that we're struggling with, assessing uh, our time in the Word and whether or not that needs to be adjusted at all, um, evaluating those topics that we've gone over, those basic principles of the oracles of God that we said that we want to be faithful to know in such a way that we could teach others, um, and then even being prepared to kind of think through goals that we want to set spiritually for next year. And that's something that our accountability group did this past week. We were talking about just updated struggles for us and So we kind of went around and shared some things that we had shared in the past, kind of updated each other on whether those are still struggles or how they've changed maybe. And then we talked about our time in the Word and and what that's looked like. So I would encourage you to do that with your accountability group as well. All right, so that brings us to Hebrews chapter 8. The author brings into the discussion the better covenant that we see in the New Testament. And so Um, We'll read Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 1, says, Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God." 
And they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, and from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Our summary sentence for today, Jesus ushers in the new covenant, which is built on promises of obedient living, intimate fellowship, and eternal forgiveness, rendering the old covenant obsolete as a mere shadow of the better things to come. Jesus ushers in the new covenant. We're told that the new covenant is built on better promises, and we're told specifically what some of those promises are that are better. Obedient living, intimate fellowship, eternal forgiveness, rendering the old covenant obsolete as a mere shadow of of the better things to come. For our kids, everything in the Old Testament points to better things in the New Testament. So we get this idea of of shadowy figures in the Old Testament here in chapter 8, where God instituted things that were meant to point us to a greater reality in the New Testament. And so when Jesus shows up, we start to realize some of those better things in the New Testament, things that in the Old Testament were simply meant to prepare us for things coming in the New Testament. And so over the next couple of weeks, today we're seeing the better covenant discussed in chapter 8. In chapter 9, we see a better sanctuary. And in chapter 10, we're going to see the better sacrifice that comes through the work of Jesus. Now, what's helpful here in chapter 8 is that the author tells us what the main point has been for his recent discussion in the book of Hebrews. He says, the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest. All right, so he cues us into what the whole purpose of him bringing this type of stuff up is. He wants us to understand the type of high priest that we have. All right, so the main point, we have such a high priest, and that takes us back to chapter 7, where we just were last week. It says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, a holy one, an innocent one, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered up himself. All right, and so we see the type of high priest that we have. And the, the author says, my main point in talking about all of this is for you to see the type of high priest that we possess as believers. All right, um, this passage quoted here uh, in the middle of the chapter, it's the longest quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And it comes from Jeremiah chapter 31. All right, and so he quotes from the Old Testament this, this prediction, this prophecy of the new covenant to come. So what that lets us know is that just like the Jews should have anticipated a better priest to come, they should have been anticipating a better covenant as well. This, this really wasn't meant to be new information, right? Jesus is predicted as being a better priest, a priest from a different priesthood in the book of Psalm. We saw that, that, that God was going to raise up somebody after the order of Melchizedek. Here we're told that God promises and predicts this idea of a new covenant that is to come as well. And so these things were, were, were discussed and told in the Old Testament. They're predicted in the Old Testament, prophesied in the Old Testament to set the stage for the New Testament. So this isn't new information. The author of Hebrews is trying to help us see, to especially the original readers, the Jewish people who were still clinging on to that Old Covenant or tempted to go back to the Old Covenant. He wants them to see, even at the height of the Old Covenant, there was discussions taking place about something better to come. Okay, so uh, just like the Jews should have anticipated the better priest to come, they should have been anticipating this better covenant as well. So the idea of covenant, it's the best way to really understand the Bible um, as we see it through a lens of covenant. Um, And and we discussed, it's been a little over five years now, the, the idea of dispensational theology, covenant theology, and new covenant theology. And we worked through all the covenants in Scripture. We talked about the covenant of works, the covenant of grace. We talked about covenants made with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. 
I went back and kind of looked through some of those notes, pulled just a little bit of information from that because it's a lot of weighty stuff. And we did a seven-week series on covenant theology, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to those uh, or at least read back through your notes because there's a lot of helpful information there that ties into what we're talking about here in the book of Hebrews. For the sake of time and for the sake of what we're doing, going chapter by chapter, we're not going to go back and rehash that information because thankfully we have podcasts in place and we have notes in place where that can be done by you on your own time. So I would encourage you, especially if you weren't here at our church during that time period, to potentially go back and set aside some time to listen to that because in that seven-week discussion, we talked about um, all the covenants, what those covenants meant, what the purpose of them were. We talked about um, how the Holy Spirit functioned in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. We talked about how there was some similarities, that the Holy Spirit was certainly indwelling believers and certainly uh, working to bring them to salvation, but there's certainly a difference in the New Testament as well, that the Holy Spirit comes on in a new, in a fresh, in a more intentional way in the New Testament. And we talked about the differences and similarities. So there was a lot of teaching on the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, Holy Spirit in the New Testament, that he wasn't completely absent in the Old Testament, that he was certainly working and moving in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, but in a different way. Uh, We talked about the signs of the covenant. We talked about what the purpose of circumcision was. We talked about baptism in the New Testament. We talked about why we believe here at this church that you circumcise babies in the Old Testament and you baptize believers in the New Testament. We walked through scriptural reasons for seeing that. And so a lot of discussion about covenant and, and how we view the Bible through covenant. So I would encourage you, if you have time in your schedules, to potentially go back and reference some of that material because it may be very helpful for you further understanding some of the things that we talk about here in the book of Hebrews. What we find here in Hebrews chapter 8, the author is revealing to us that the old covenant has some faults to it. Um, It says in verse 7, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But the fact is, is that God prophesied a second or a better covenant to come. And so old covenant is revealed to be faulty. It was never designed to last because it couldn't provide a priest that could offer that ultimate sacrifice. So the whole idea of the priest living and dying, living and dying, more and more priest, the idea of sacrifices constantly having to be offered, it, it created a mindset in the Jewish people that this can't, this can't be all that there is. Like this, this cycle never ends. And so that was part of the purpose of the old covenant was to create an understanding of, of Jesus coming on the scene and being better than those things. So it's real to be faulty. Um, what we see here ultimately is that there is a better priest with a better ministry, and he comes to install a better covenant that has better promises. And then at the end of chapter 8, uh, the old covenant is told to us that it's becoming obsolete. It says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The old, com- old covenant would become fully obsolete in AD 70 with the destruction of the Jewish temple. We talked about this heavily in the book of Revelation in our studies, right? That the eighty seventy mark is when the temple is completely destroyed and it's never been rebuilt. And so it therefore ended the sacrificial system. For the Jewish people, they believe that it's on pause. For the believing Christian, we believe that it's vanished away, that it's been done with, that we don't need that system any longer, that it served its purpose, but it's now obsolete. It's now vanishing away instituting the new covenant. And that new covenant will be fully realized in the very end, in Revelation 21.3. Part of the language there about the new covenant is reiterated in Revelation 21. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Man, this is the culmination of the priestly order of Jesus and what he comes to do. He comes to mediate the relationship between God and man. He comes to bring the environment of God to man. And that's what we see here in the book of Revelation when that will be fully realized. So we're in the new covenant, but we don't see all the promises fulfilled yet. We're still waiting for that day when all of this comes together. And that's highlighted for us there at the end of Revelation. Okay, let's talk briefly about what was lacking in the Old Covenant. If it has flaws, if it's not faultless, what were some things that were lacking in the Old Covenant? Okay, give you a short list here. 
Um, first, a clear, full knowledge of Jesus Christ was lacking in the Old Covenant. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All right, so there was a lack of clear understanding about Jesus and the Messiah in the Old Covenant. And that comes in the New Covenant. Jesus lifts that veil. So we talked about the veil being ripped in the actual temple, giving us full access to God. But there's a spiritual veil that's kind of over the people's understanding, and that gets lifted in the New Covenant as well. There's even a passage in one of the Gospels where Jesus is talking about his death and his resurrection. And the Bible says that the the disciples were very confused about this, and they had a lot of questions about it, but they were fearful to even ask some of those things. So their comprehension level of what happens in the New Testament was veiled. It was, it was lacking clear understanding in the Old Covenant, all right? Second, a full giving of the Holy Spirit. Told you that in our covenant discussion, we talked about what the Holy Spirit did in the Old Testament, what he didn't do in the Old Testament, and that certainly is rectified in the New Covenant where the Holy Spirit comes in a full way to do his job. John chapter 16, verse 7 Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged." Okay, so Jesus talks about the advantage of the new covenant, that the Holy Spirit comes in a new way or in a more full way, all right? A global blessing for all nations, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, um, is the, the great commission that we're to go and make disciples of all nations. We've talked also how there's kind of a veiling of the gospel in the Old Testament to the Gentiles. We talked about this in relationship to the book of Revelation, right? We talked about Satan being bound in such ways now where the gospel is going forth into areas that it had not previously gone. We also see in that covenant discussion how the Holy Spirit was working in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it really starts to to be done in such a way where believers are spilling over into other people. That, that the believing community becomes very globally focused in the new covenant. Old covenant, it's all about Israel, very inward focused, right? Not a whole lot of heart and compassion for the rest of the world, even though they were supposed to be a light. In the new covenant, certainly at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the believing community, we see throughout the book of Acts this Uh, this renewed desire to see the gospel go forth. We see missionaries being sent out. We see churches being planted. We see the gospel going around the world in the New Testament, right? So that's part of what comes in the new covenant. There's this renewed desire, this fresh filling of the Holy Spirit where we're like sponges that are now getting squeezed out all over the world. We are are spreading uh, the gospel, all right? And, And then consistent perseverance by the covenant people. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. One of the big differences in Old Covenant, New Covenant is Old Covenant, you were born into the covenant, right? You were born into it as a Jewish individual. There was a remnant that we talk about. We call it true Israel or believing Israel. But overall, the nation of Israel was God's covenant people. So when he gives instructions, he's not giving it to the believing Israelites or the believing Jewish people. He's giving it to the nation, right? Sometimes when we talk about biblical instruction here in this room, I will differentiate and say, this is for believers. Like I'll remind you that what we're talking about, we're talking about believers having a responsibility to do these things. 
In the old covenant, it was for all Jewish people. Whether you believed or didn't believe, you were a part of the covenant community by birth. And you had responsibilities to live accordingly because of your birth into the covenant community. New covenant, it's by belief and faith that you're identified with the new covenant, not by birth. Just because you have Christian parents doesn't make you part of the covenant people. Okay, And so because of that change, what we're now talking about is God's covenant people persevere because they're true believers, right? Old Testament, and we even see it highlighted here in Hebrews chapter 8, what does God say? He says, I rescued them from Israel, or I rescued, I rescued Israel from Egypt, and what did they do? They didn't stay faithful to me, right? Like they, they didn't stay faithful to me. They wandered away. They weren't obedient to me. He says, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. Big difference. Old covenant, people wandered. People didn't persevere. People fell away. New covenant, we don't. We don't because the people that make up the new covenant are true believers, okay? So those were some of the things lacking in the old covenant. You had a lack of a full knowledge of Jesus. You didn't have the full working of the Holy Spirit. You didn't have a global focus by God's people, and there wasn't consistent perseverance by the covenant people, all right? So some things that were lacking about it. But as I told you at the beginning of our study, doesn't mean that the Old Testament's bad. Doesn't mean that the Old Covenant is bad. There's some good things about the Old Covenant as well. First of all, God shows a lot of grace in giving us the Old Covenant in that it increases our knowledge of sin to pave the way for Christ into our hearts. God uses the Old Covenant to kind of set the stage for our need to understand Jesus. In Romans chapter 3, Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans chapter four, verse 15. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Okay, so the law brings about conviction. It brings about an awareness of our sin. And then in Galatians chapter three, Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Okay, so old covenant, man, it's preparatory. It's a shadow. It helps us to understand what was to come in the future. It reveals to us our sin. The Jewish people were very aware of their sin because of the constant sacrifices being offered. Okay, so it it serves as a tutor. It helps us to understand our need for salvation. And then God shows a ton of grace in the old covenant too, in that he keeps the righteous requirements of the law for us when we could not. All right, so Jesus, or God doesn't initiate this covenant that we can't keep and then doesn't make any type of provision for us in it. He does institute a covenant that we can't keep. They, they, can't, they can't be fully obedient to it, but God makes a way of escape. He makes provision in the midst of our failures. Romans chapter, um, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 talks about Jesus coming to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law for us. Okay, so Old Covenant was lacking some things. Old Covenant was still good for some things, okay? And then the last question that I want us to discuss before we jump into this specific text is how did salvation, if at all, change from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Because that's one point that sometimes people get hung up on and get confused about when they think about how things used to be and how things are today. Because you look into the Old Testament and you see a lot of sacrifices, you see a lot of commandments, a lot of laws, and it's very easy to fall prey to thinking that those things contributed to their salvation. And then it's very easy to think that, man, things are better in the New Testament because our salvation is based on grace versus being based on law. And that's not a correct understanding of the differences between the Old and New New Covenant. There are definitely differences that we're talking about, but one thing that stays the same is how somebody is justified in the eyes of God. It It didn't look any different. 
So in the old covenant, you were justified a certain way. And in the new covenant, you're justified the exact same way. Why is that important? Because it, again, is God revealing to us how he works and how he functions. We need to understand our salvation as much as we can. Gives us further confidence to hold fast the more we understand that. Remember we said, man, our salvation is secure. Secure based on the priestly work of Jesus. Our feelings of assurance increase the more we understand how salvation works, okay? So that's why we're getting into a deeper understanding of how our salvation works. First, did salvation change from the old covenant to the new covenant? One, salvation has never been based on works. For our kids, salvation never comes from good works. In Romans chapter 4, Paul helps us to see this by reaching back into the Old Testament and picking out a prominent figure to show us how his salvation works. What then shall we say, verse 1, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. All right, so we see salvation for Abraham, not based on good works, strictly based on his faith. And then in Galatians chapter 3, Paul picks up that argument again to a different church. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 15 says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So what's that mean? Paul's saying, well, Abraham certainly didn't get saved by being obedient to the law because he didn't even have the law yet. The law came 430 years after Abraham. He says, Abraham was absolutely saved by faith, absolutely justified by his belief, and it certainly was not tied to his good works. Okay, so Paul draws upon the salvation of Abraham to help us see that salvation has never been based on works. Number two, it's never been based on sacrifices. The Jewish people were not saved by their sacrifices. We'll see this more in depth when we get to Hebrews chapter 10. But in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would, have, would they uh, not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, so their salvation was never based on sacrifices, never based on good works, and it's always been based on Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. Always been based on that. Even when the Old Testament people didn't fully understand it. In Romans chapter 3, Verse 25, talking about the, the work of, of salvation and the righteousness of God and, and how things worked in the Old Testament. It says that um, God put forward as a propitiation, talking about Jesus by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So at best, all the sacrifices did in the Old Testament was allow God to overlook, to, to put a pause mode in place for his judgment on sin. He, 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 in his divine forbearance, he overlooks them, right? He, he, he excuses them for the time being with the full knowledge that he is going to exercise his wrath upon Jesus on the cross, okay? So at best, those sacrifices were like a stopgap to kind of to kind of keep a, 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 an expression of, of repentance and confession. But ultimately, God knew, man, the ultimate sacrifice has to come to hold back my wrath forever, right? So salvation's always been based on Jesus's life, death, and resurrection because even in the Old Testament, those sins were not forgiven. 
they weren't dealt with until Jesus comes and dies on the cross. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Man, nobody in the old covenant was saved without the work of Jesus, right? Doesn't matter how many good works they have, doesn't matter how many sacrifices they offered, all of that, all of that pointed towards Jesus having to come and really deal with their sin. Their sins um, are redeemed because of the death of Jesus, all right? Um, and then Revelation 13, 8 talks about the, the lamb being slain from the foundations of the world, okay? So even if the Old Testament people didn't fully understand the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God did, and their salvation was based upon it. Lastly, salvation has always been based on faith and belief. Always been faith, based on faith and belief. Genesis fifteen six is where Romans quotes from, and it says that Abraham believed God, counted to him as righteousness. Hebrews eleven six says it's impossible to please God without faith. So, summarize that. What does that mean? It means that salvation's always been based on our belief in what God says. The difference between the two covenants is that we have far more that God has said for us to believe in. Okay but it's always been based on God revealing certain things about himself and mankind believing those things. And the more he increases our knowledge of what he has said, the more responsibility that we have to believe the things that he has said. Okay, so salvation's always based on the work of Jesus. How it's applied to man is through man having faith and belief in the things that God has revealed and said to him. And that's what we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament is that salvation, righteousness, counted towards those who believe. And what's great is that it works the same way for Jews and Gentiles. It works the same way. There, there's not salvation one way for Jews, and it'd be different for Gentiles. It works the same way. Abraham is kind of that key figure for how it works for the Jewish people. He's the, the guy that is referenced by Paul in the New Testament, salvation by faith. Can anybody think of somebody who is referenced in the uh, New Testament, who comes from the Old Testament, who is a Gentile, and their salvation is described in a similar way? Rahab. So in the book of James, Rahab is highlighted. And she's like, I mean, she's like the worst Gentile you can get kind of thing. I mean, so he just, he gets the greatest Jew who could have maybe boasted about good works and says, nope, Abraham based on faith. Then he like digs back into the, the Old Testament and says, let's pull out like the worst Gentile, the prostitute, the one who lived in Jericho, who was the first like big name place that was going to fall when God gave the promised land away to the Israelites. He says, I mean, she was saved by faith too. Not by works, but by faith. And then he talks about how both of them through faith really began to show work, right? Like their, their good works come after their salvation. And it works the same way for Jews and Gentiles there too. Both are saved by faith. And once both express faith, they start to work out their faith, okay? So salvation is the same in the old covenant and the new covenant, never based on good works, never based on sacrifices, always based on the work of Jesus, always given out, in response to our faith and belief. All right, let's talk about some foundational truths in Hebrews chapter eight regarding the new covenant. What are some things that we learn about the new covenant from this chapter? First of all, its priest has the right to sit down due to completing the work. For our kids, he sits down showing that his work is complete. It says, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. In regards to the Levitical priests, they were never able to sit down because their work was never done. These guys were constantly having to offer sacrifices. They were constantly having to work in the temple. They were never permitted to sit down. What we see differently about Jesus is that he is sitting down. His work has been accomplished. And so we'll see that as we get deeper into Hebrews, how these Levitical priests were, were, were constantly up and moving around. Talks about them standing in the gap and having to offer these sacrifices. Great thing about Jesus is that he's sitting at the right hand of God. He's sitting at the right hand of God because his priestly ministry has been complete in regards to sacrifices. He offered the one sacrifice. 
it was sufficient to forgive us of our sins. Its priest has the right to sit down due to completing the work. Second thing about the new covenant, its priest performs ministry in a better location. For our kids, he serves in heaven. It says, um, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. All right, so the author is reminding us that Jesus could not function as a priest in the old covenant in the Jewish system because he wasn't from the tribe of Levi. Think about it. Jesus never goes into the temple and assumes any authority in the temple as though he can bypass where the priests were allowed to go. You ever thought about that? Like Jesus had, had every right to walk into the Holy of Holies and could have easily demonstrated his deity by walking in, prancing around in the Holy of Holies and walking out and saying, I'm the only other person that's ever come in here besides the high priest and lived to tell about it. But Jesus doesn't assume that type of authority. He set it up to function in a certain way. And he knows I'm not from the tribe of Levi, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to denounce the way that the old covenant is structured to work. He never walks into the Holy of Holies and does what he could have rightfully done. He leaves that to the Levitical priesthood at that time. I mean, even when he's visiting the temple as a kid, he could have walked into the Holy of Holies based on his holiness, and he doesn't, right? He would have gone and and had his family offer sacrifices to a man when he's the better priest. But he allows the system to function the way that it's supposed to because he established it. But here we're told he would not have been able to function as a priest under this old covenant system. Right? He's from, the, tri- he's from the, the priesthood of Melchizedek, but he couldn't have functioned as a Levitical priest because he's not from the tribe of Levi. He functions in a better place. He functions in heaven. The tabernacle, the temple were simply shadows of that type of setting. So he establishes himself, says, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown on the mountain, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than is the uh, old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. So Jesus serves in a better place. His priestly function is taking place in heaven. All right, so the tabernacle shadow of heavenly things. Man, if you jump back to Revelation, think about some of the things that we saw in some of those visions and how they were better representations of what we see in the Old Testament, right? Like we see a better temple in Revelation 11. We see a better brazen altar in Revelation chapter 6. We see a better incense altar in Revelation chapter 8. We see better lamps in Revelation chapter 4. It makes sense that we would see some of those things when we catch a glimpse of heaven. Because what we're told is that the earthly things are simply shadows being cast of better heavenly things. So everything in heaven's better, and it's casting this shadow on the earth to help us better understand what's happening in heaven, right? Like if you look at a shadow, you can start to determine some things about the object, even if you don't see the object, right? Like you see a shadow, and typically your mind can start to determine, oh, that's coming from there. There it is. We can identify the object based on the shadow, But man, the shadow pales in comparison to the better object, right? Far more detailed when we look at the actual object. You can see the outline. You can see the shape. You can determine some things about the object. But once you turn from the shadow to the object, man, what you're able to determine, what you're able to see drastically increases, right? Its priest performs in a better location, performs his ministry in a better location. Jesus has a higher seat than the priest prior to him. Um, heaven rather than earth. We see that exaltation in Philippians 2. And what's crazy is that Revelation 3.21 tells us we're going to sit in the same location with him one day. Man, he's got this exalted place that he sits. And then in Revelation 3, he makes a promise to them. He makes a promise to them about people coming and sitting with him, right? Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What an amazing promise to know that we'll sit in that place with Jesus one day. He's living in the Holy of Holies where he advocates and intercedes for us today. And number three, its priest mediates better promises. New Covenant has a priest in Jesus who mediates better promises. Those promises are described for us here in Hebrews 8. Not to say that this is necessarily an exclusive list, 
But certainly three things are pointed out here, that the law will be written on our hearts, that all members of this covenant will know him, and our sins will be forgiven forever. Those are some foundational truths that we see about this new covenant. I want to give you three points of application as an outline to further understand this chapter. So number one, we are called to live obediently from an inward desire rather than outward compulsion. Live obediently from inward desire rather than outward compulsion. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. All right, the idea here is that God is going to create new desires in the new covenant people to where they are prompted to live out his laws and commands. Think about how the laws were written in the Old Testament. Right? They're not described as being written on the hearts. Where are they described as being written at? They're written on stone tablets. And then the children of Israel are commanded to like write them on their foreheads, to bind them all over themselves, to write them on their doors, like to make them prominent so they don't forget them because some of them were having to live out those things because of the outward compulsion. Like it was required, it was a law. They had to do this. Maybe it wasn't a desire to do it, they were forced to do it, right? There, uh, there's this idea, like, so like even in school, right? Like we have to have rules at our school because the kids wouldn't, wouldn't naturally act this way. Wouldn't naturally act this way, right? One of the things that we're trying to teach them is uh, through our, like even our dress code, Right? Like if, if, if we didn't have a dress code, most of our kids would show up in pajamas. Right? They would show up just ratty looking, dirty looking. Because anybody that shows up in public in their pajamas just kind of has like a dirty look to me. Like just, oh, you slept in that and then you like showed up to like do work in that. Right? I hate pajama day at our school when we do this for like spirit week because I just feel like everybody is just like didn't brush their teeth, like didn't, didn't shower. We tell our kids, part of the reason we have a dress code is to teach you that there's coming a day where you're going to have to choose to wear the right thing because of the environment that you're going to be in. Like you're going to get a job interview. You don't want to show up in in pajamas, right? Like we're trying to create some desires and them helping to realize some of the purpose for why they need to do some things down the road. Right now, we kind of have to force them to do it, right? So that when they show up like yesterday at a wedding, they kind of know how to present themselves without having to have a strict dress code. Adam and I were bouncing text messages back and forth. What do we have to wear to this today? Like, remember I told you the story before where we showed up at that family reunion when we were dressed in shorts and everybody else was in tuxedos. So Adam and I are very conscious about we never want to underdress for something like that, right? So what's being told here is that, man, God's going to write the law on their hearts. He's going to write it in such a way where, man, just out of a natural desire, the new covenant people will want to be obedient and to do things because of a changed desire, Okay. So that's one of the promises that's contained here. We have a responsibility to live obediently from an inward desire rather than outward compulsion. All right, the laws written on our hearts change desires. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. When this shift comes, the expectation that we obey internally and not just externally changes as well. Think about what God or Jesus says in Matthew 5. Right, Matthew 5, he says, man, you guys have been functioning under this idea that to not commit adultery is to not have a physical interaction with somebody. He says, man, I'm talking about the things that you're thinking about in your heart and your mind causing you guilt regarding this law. He says, you think you haven't committed murder because you haven't physically acted against somebody, but I'm telling you, if you hate somebody in your heart and your mind, you're guilty of that. So as this shift starts to happen, the expectation increases too. 
Like I'm writing laws on your hearts and that's where I expect to see it obeyed, not just externally, but internally as well. We're given a moral understanding of God's will and we're given a desire to obey it. Even Paul talks about this in Romans 7, right? Where he talks about this this inward desire to do things and not do things, but he finds himself externally kind of acting contrary to that. But he talks about, man, something's happening inwardly in, in me that's different now. Like I desire to do things. I, I desire to not do things. God is working in me and he's starting from the inward and will start to shape the outward. The Holy Spirit empowers us to obey God. That's something, something we certainly see in the new covenant in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So we get the helper, the Holy Spirit, who helps us keep the commandments of God. We already highlighted this, but what Hebrews 8 tells us is that in the old covenant, they were delivered from Egypt and they did not persevere. They did not remain faithful. What we find in the new covenant is that we are delivered from sin and we will persevere if we're true covenant members. We will persevere. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27 is another great passage that kind of talks about this promise that comes in the new covenant. <clears throat> Similar to what we see in Jeremiah 31. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So if we're we're New Covenant members, if we're believers, if we claim to be Christians, then we should be living obediently from an inward desire rather than simply outward compulsion. Number two, pursue intimacy personally rather than waiting for someone to teach you. Pursue intimacy personally rather than waiting for someone to teach you. Covenant members are expected to know the Lord because only true believers are members of the new covenant. All right, What would have been true in the old covenant is that you would have had some believing covenant members having to remind other people to follow the Lord because they weren't regenerate. They weren't true believers. In the new covenant, we don't have to have that because if we're truly members of the new covenant, then we do know the Lord and we should be pursuing intimacy with him. The Holy Spirit empowers us to know God. So we see him empowering us to be obedient, but he also empowers us to know God as well. In John chapter 14, verse 15. Sorry, John chapter 16, verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, Jesus tells his disciples, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Holy Spirit shows up and helps us to learn. He teaches us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. We have a responsibility to pursue this knowledge and fellowship personally. Philippians 3 8 through 10, Paul talks about just his, his ongoing pursuit to know Jesus, to know the power of his resurrection. We can pursue intimacy. We don't have to wait on someone to teach us things. We don't have to wait on a priest, an earthly priest, to help us get to know God. We can know him personally, intimately, individually. All right, and then number three, enjoy daily God's mercy rather than feeling guilt and despair. So back in Hebrews chapter eight, just so we're kind of seeing the flow of this chapter. We start by talking about Jesus being still that better priest. He, he's in a better location. He's sitting down versus standing up. He's, he's serving in heaven, and he's bringing better promises. Well, what are those promises? Well, the author pulls from Jeremiah, and he begins to work through these promises in chapter 8 now. He tells us that, one, the law is written on our hearts. Two, that... Um, 
that we can know him, that we can, that we can intimately know him. And then number three, that we get forgiveness forever. He says in verse 12, For I will be merciful towards your iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. We need to find encouragement in the reality that our sin has been dealt with and forgotten. It's not being passed over any longer, right? So we've talked about this, that even in bringing sacrifices, you still, you still knew that, man, we're going to have to keep doing this. If you're in the old covenant, you had this weight kind of always over you that, man, I have to do this again because I, I know I'm going I'm I'm to be, be guilty again, right? What we see in the new covenant that's so different, the better promise is that we don't offer sacrifices anymore because there is a great sacrifice that has dealt with it once and for all. Think about all the denominational differences that exist. Think about that. And I was talking with our kids um, Tuesday when we were talking about Melchizedek and how Jesus is a better priest. Because I told them, I said, man, you guys all come from a bunch of different churches in this area. I think we have like over 170 different churches represented at Trinity alone, right? And they all believe different things about the end times and about uh, speaking in tongues and about prophecies and, and about church order and about how to do the Lord's Supper. And I mean, all kinds of differences. <clears throat> I said, raise your hand if you go to a church that offers sacrifices. Like, nobody, right? Like I could have said, raise your hand if you speak in tongues at your church and we would have gotten some. Raise your hand if you drink wine at the Lord's Supper instead of grape juice and we would have gotten a bunch of different answers. Raise your hand if you offer sacrifices. Like nobody, nobody. Even people who, who are strictly Jewish can't offer sacrifices. Man, it's, the, it's one thing that certainly is true across the board. Unless you're coming from some really weird, potentially satanic religion, like you don't ever encounter people offering sacrifices. And it's a nod to what happened when Jesus came because even in the Old Testament, you had secular pagan people offering sacrifices, kind of replicating what they witnessed in true worship by God's people. You just don't have that anymore. You just don't have it anymore because the sacrifice came and it forgives us of our sins. It forgives us of our sins. He doesn't remember them anymore. And that's so important to us because that offers encouragement to us on a daily basis because we sin on a daily basis and we don't have to have this heavy weight of burden of guilt weighing upon us because we can confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. We don't have to go purchase something. We don't have to conjure up some type of animal that will will satisfy God's wrath. His wrath has been satisfied. And it protects us from falling into pits of despair as we fail God, as we sin against God. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. He is faithful to remember them no more. That old covenant, it's, it's being made obsolete by what Jesus came to do in the New Testament. Being made obsolete. But man, it's still so important. It's still so good because it helps us better understand what it is we enjoy in the New Covenant. All right, from an application standpoint, two things that I want to give you. Number one, be growing regularly through a plan that you develop. Be growing regularly. Promise here. He says, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And the encouragement here is that because the Holy Spirit indwells us in the way that he does, we can know the Lord. We can know him intimately. We don't have to wait on somebody to teach us. Told you the more God is revealed, the more responsibility there is on us to believe. The more advantages given to us, the greater the expectations are for us to know him. We have all the advantages that any believer has ever had. Because not only do we live in the day that we live, we live in the country that we live in. We live with the amount of money that we possess to where really nothing is held back from us. Right? There are people that live here today in this day and age that don't even have all the advantages because they live in a place where they don't have access to the resources. They don't have access to the knowledge that we have. Man, such an expectation that we would know God intimately because of what we have been blessed with. And then the last thing, and I think this is, so for us, maybe we don't need that encouragement as much here at the end about our, our iniquities being forgiven, that God's mercies are shown to us and he'll remember our sins no more because we've always kind of lived in that type of age. 
right? Like we're not coming from old to new, like some of the people reading this at that time. Like we've just kind of always understood, well, yeah, Jesus forgives us of our sins. Like I've always been taught that. Okay, so maybe the deeper application for us is that, man, what does that mean for us in relationship to other people, right? So number two is be ready to forgive others because of the forgiveness that you experienced. Because there is a huge expectation placed on new covenant members in regards to how they're to forgive other people. Because you have been forgiven much, right? Like all your sins have been forgiven and they've been forgiven forever. How much more then should we be forgiving people around us? Let me read these last couple passages to you and we'll be done. Matthew chapter six, verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Ephesians chapter four, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And then Colossians chapter three, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Man, we we, we, we have to be the most forgiving bunch of people that the world has ever seen. Like that's the expectation placed upon us. Why? Because we've been forgiven of so much. Jesus talks about the parable of the, of the, um, the king who forgives the servant and then the servant turns around and doesn't forgive. Because the implication is that, man, because you've been forgiven so much, how can you not forgive people of lesser offenses? So you may not need the, the reminder today that Jesus has forgiven you of all your sins. You may be operating that under that already. The reminder that you may need today is that because he shows mercy, because he remembers your sins no more, how much more should we be interacting with other people that way too? And think about that. As we get ready to leave today and as we venture back into our, our different jobs and different family situations, we encounter people who offend us, who hurt us. And it's so tempting to hold grudges and to seek revenge. And everything in the New Testament tells us contrary to that, right? Because we've been forgiven of so much, how much more should we be forgiving of others? I will be merciful towards their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. Whatever offenses people give towards us, they're far less than the amount of offenses that we've given towards God. If he's willing to not remember those any longer because of the sacrifice of Jesus, how much more should we be willing to forgive and to remember no more the sins that other people commit towards us? Family worship questions this week to read Hebrews chapter 9 as a family, to discuss clear things in the chapter, and to discuss questions that may still linger from your discussion as well. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for what's been contained here in chapter 8 of Hebrews for us. We thank you for this better covenant that we live under. We thank you for the old covenant. We thank you for how it makes us aware of our sin. We thank you for how it is a shadow of the heavenly things. And so we thank you for the things that we can learn by looking at those shadows. But God, we're also very thankful that in today, the New Testament, the New Covenant, you have revealed more of the the actual objects to us that those things were simply shadows of. So God, we're thankful that we have a a deeper understanding of Jesus. We have a deeper understanding of his priesthood. We have a deeper understanding of his sacrifice. While you've saved people the same way since the beginning of time, God, we're thankful that you have illuminated our minds so that we can see better how salvation works, that it's always been based on the work of Jesus. It's always been in response to our faith and trust in that, the things that you've said. So God, we're thankful that you're a God who has said much to us, giving us ample opportunity to respond in faith and belief towards you and the things that you've said. God, I pray that we would um, be experiencing the promises of this new covenant, that we would live inwardly, obediently towards you not just because there's laws in place that tell us to do so, but because we desire to serve you, that your law would be written on our hearts. We're thankful that we can know you intimately and that we don't have to wait and rely upon someone else to teach us that. God, I pray that each of us would pursue intimate knowledge, intimate 
fellowship with you personally. And God, we're thankful that you do forgive us of our sins, that Jesus' sacrifice is all sufficient, that we don't have to come today and factor in sacrifices as part of our order of worship. God, I'm thankful that instead we can, we can consume our time with singing and praying to you and reading your word aloud, celebrating the fact that the sacrifice part of our worship has been done away with. God, I pray that in light of your forgiveness, that we would be very quick to forgive other people too. God, I pray that we, when we are tempted to be angry and frustrated and to hold grudges and to seek vengeance, that we would be very mindful of the sins that you have chosen to remember no more about us. Help us to be people who are seeking reconciliation constantly with those around us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.